Number seven, God's Mission, fourth quarter, 2023. John Pauline. Hello, Pino family. Lesson seven of the quarter, God's Mission, my mission. Karen is going to offer a prayer for us. Dear beloved Father God, we just want to praise you right now for your unfathomable love for us. And we breathe deeply and focus our scattered thoughts on you as our distracted hearts are calmed and soothed by your deep compassion for us. And each of us around the world is filled with immense gratitude for all the ways in which you've loved us every hour of our lives, for the countless moments of care that we've never even noticed or paused to thank you for. And today, as we explore the story of the Good Samaritan, we know this is a story of your tender care for us. Because you are mindful of every heartache and every injury we've ever felt. When others walk past our pain, you notice everything we suffer and you feel it deep in your own heart. And when others ignore our need for help and healing, you see every cut and bruise inside and out. And you care for our brokenness with deep tenderness. When we are thirsty for encouragement, you refresh us with the water of life. And when we are too exhausted and hurt to move, You gently pick us up and carry us to a safe place. And may our hearts learn from yours as we study with our friend John today. Bless him as he guides us on this journey. May our thoughts be filled with your thoughts as our eyes learn to see the suffering around us as you see it. And our minds learn that our purpose is to relieve pain, not to cause it or ignore it. As our hearts are filled to bursting with your compassion and and as our ears learn to listen to the lonely and grieving, and we learn to ask how we can comfort them best. And all this we ask so that we can be channels of your love into the lives that are hurting and broken and help them to find places of care and safety. And today we ask that everyone in this group and everyone listening around the world will be aware of your compassion for them and your tender care for their personal pain. And we are so glad that we know and love a God like you who loves us more than we will ever know. And we thank you, beloved Father, with every part of our being. And we look forward to the day when we will be hugged and held in your strong and loving arms. Amen. This is the seventh in a series on mission. And it's about mission to my neighbor. And this should be interesting, as was mentioned already. The talking particularly about the Good Samaritan. And this is a very unusual lesson. I was really struggling at first how to approach this because the two previous ones focused on a particular text, but this one focuses on a story. And how do you distribute a story over Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? That's what was happening in this lesson. Already on the first one, I had the whole story in mind. Then I said, oops, now we're on verse two. I've got to rethink what they're doing with, with this story. So it was a very interesting experience. And mission to my neighbor, I think, is basically saying, how do you do mission with someone who already knows what you believe and is not enthusiastic? And so that would be the case with the fellow who came and questioned Jesus. He knew Jesus. He thought he knew what he was all about. He'd already kind of deposited Jesus' perspective in the can, you know in the in the trash and now he's coming just to have fun and debate how do you handle that and so taking a look at how jesus approaches this might be helpful to us in the whole neighbor thing but to start us off to think a little bit 
I have a question right at the beginning of number one. Is it possible to have a deeper relationship with God than you have with other human beings? I don't mind you thinking for a bit on that one. It wasn't an easy question. But is it possible to have a closer relationship with God than you have with other people? I mean, I've known people who make great profession of their walk with God that don't seem to get along with anybody else. Is that really possible or something else going on? All right, Lou's going to jump right out the gate and give us some help on this. Well, to me, yes, absolutely it is, because God knows every single thought that I think and every feeling that I feel, and he loves me in spite of that sometimes, whereas we have to be a little more guarded around other people, even close friends and even relatives. Sometimes we are more selective in what we share and everything, but with Jesus and with God and the Holy Spirit, we can share everything because he already knows everything that's in my heart and mind. He knows where I need healed and where I need adjustments. And I'm just very thankful for that. That speaks more to me of God's great inclusive love than just about anything else is that I can be totally honest with God, not just pray with platitudes and things that I think he wants to hear, but I can be totally absolutely honest with God with what's going on in my life, because he already knows. Well, probably one biblical character that might be encouraging for you is David, one of the most messed up people in all the Bible, and yet he seems to clearly have had a deep walk with God. Larry, what do you think? When I read the question, I thought, uh, yes. Then I started to think things through and and this is kind of like the, which is came first, the chicken or the egg. So in my experience, which since I think I'm a normal human, I'm going to extrapolate that into everybody else's experience. As I look at my history, my relationship with God got better as my relationship with the people I loved around me got better. And then I realized that actually wasn't what was happening at all. It was as my relationship with God got better, my relationship with the people around me got better. So I'm still not sure which is the chicken and which is the egg on this one. But I think the answer is that it's not possible to have a deeper relationship with humans than you have with God. So I'm going to state your question in the negative, but going the other direction. Very interesting approach there. Well, let me give you the countertext. Okay, we talked about David there for a moment. Let's go to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20. So right toward the end of the New Testament, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20. Those who say, I love God and hate their brothers or sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. That throws a bit of a challenge at us, saying you claim to have a closer relationship with someone you cannot see than you have with people that you can see. And John at least seems to suggest that you cannot have a closer relationship with God than you can with people who are close by. Were you thinking anything, Larry? I don't disagree at all with that statement. In fact, I believe it to be 100% true, but I believe that because it's God that works on my heart, as nice a guy as you are, 
you don't work on my heart. You know, you work on my intellect and through God's working that gets to my heart. But I think that it's God that in that relationship. So if I don't love God, no matter how much I admire you, I probably won't love you. So I think that God has to come first in this equation. All right, Lou. Well, to me, it's a matter of trust because not all human beings are trustworthy fully with how I share myself. They can do whatever they want with my sharing with their trust. But with God, he is absolutely trustworthy and I can always trust him. So to me, my allegiance has to be first to God. Then, kind of like Larry was saying, as I'm trusting God, then the love that he fills in my heart is there for others, whether they trust me or not, or whether they're trustworthy or whatever. And I can share his love that way. But with humans, it's a matter of that they're not always trustworthy, but God always is trustworthy. All right. Uh, some of you may remember, and it's available at the Pinell website, a series called Stages of Relationship. And stages of Relationship sort of suggest that as people build trust, Lou, as you were just saying, as people build trust in each other, they go through stages of friendship, stages of relationship. And the first stage is the greeting stage. You know, hello, you pass somebody on the street, you give them a nod. The second stage, more vulnerable stage, is exchanging facts and reports. And why is that vulnerable? Because some people might disagree with your facts or with your report. So it's a little more vulnerable than simply a greeting. People can reject a greeting too, but it's pretty safe in most places. The third stage is exchanging opinions and judgments. Because if those get rejected, it goes a lot deeper. Because what you think, how you judge a situation is very, very close to who you are. Stage four is where you trust people enough to share your feelings. And then stage five is you trust people enough to share your faults. And stage six is you trust people enough for them to confront you about your faults. And then stage seven would be total intimacy. So I. Got that from psychologists, friends of mine who studied that for a long time. But whenever I shared this with a church group and said, at what stage does relationship with God begin? They always said stage five. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's where relationship with God is sort of the beginning point. And then I say, where is the typical church? And they usually said stage three, exchanging opinions and judgments, but nobody talks about their feelings. They may pray about someone else's feelings, but don't share their own because it's too risky. Now, if the typical church relationship is stage three and the God relationship stage five, what's going on there? So it's very interesting because if you cannot have a closer walk with somebody you can't see than somebody you can, what is that telling us here? Anyway, Michael. Anybody who has fallen in love with somebody, I mean, romantic love, husband, wife, wife, husband, man, girlfriend, whatever it is, when you confess that to the other person, you make yourself extremely vulnerable because that person can cause you harm, very deep harm, by nothing more than a frown on their face or just, nope, I'm not interested, walk away. That can cause great harm. And having a relationship with God approaches that. I don't know if it's the same thing, but I know it certainly approaches that. 
you have to make yourself vulnerable to everything in order, I think, to have a deep, meaningful relationship with God. That's the essence, I think, of what people call flirting. What flirting is, is expressing your affection for somebody in a way that's deniable. You know, so if they react negatively, you say, oh, no, 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 that's not, I didn't mean that. <laughs> you see, so kind of a double meaning, things like that. It's very vulnerable reaching out to another person. And so the question that we raise is, is a human being capable of having a more intimate relationship with an unseen being than we have with our seen beings? And we probably won't come to the end of that. So I just wanted to raise that to, to have us think about that a little bit. But let's go to number two, Luke ten twenty five, the beginning of the Good Samaritan story. And let's read that first verse and get into the message of this week. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he asked the question about salvation. What is it? What's my responsibility when it comes to salvation? Now, if he wanted to test Jesus, why does he ask a salvation question? What do you think? All right, Clara. I see it as the Jews were testing him to see whether he was going to uphold the law of Moses or if he was going to go against Roman rule by saying, committing, in other words, making a judgment. Why do you think a question of salvation might provoke an answer that would threaten either the Jews or the Romans? Well, the lawyer knew himself that the law was part of it. Mm -hmm. And so when Jesus said, okay, keep the law, then the lawyer, he says, which law? Is it? I'm getting mixed up. But anyway. Yeah, the, the story idea. appears in different forms, doesn't it, in the Gospels? And in fact, we'll take a look at that in a moment because Matthew's is quite different than Luke's. Yeah. But Jesus is confronted with a salvation question from somebody who's just trying to cause trouble. So what is going on here? What could possibly be the problem? What was he hoping to accomplish there? And I think Clara said, you know, maybe get him in trouble with the Jews or the Romans. I suspect what we do know is that Jesus was perceived to be too friendly with Gentiles, sinners, outcasts. And the lawyer perhaps suggests that Jesus will give an answer to the salvation question that won't respect the Jewish answer that had been there all along. But how does Jesus react to this is the interesting question. The lesson here is that Jesus when he responds, doesn't fight back in this case. Let's read verse 26, I think it is. He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? All right. So Jesus takes him seriously, perhaps because it's a salvation question. And Jesus is not going to make fun of that. He's not going to blow that off. Salvation is a critical kind of a thing. So Jesus treats the man seriously. I'm reminded of a statement of Ellen White in volume six of the Testimonies. I think it's around page 121. And she says, treat everyone, even the bitterest of opponents, with respect and deference. Treat them as honest. Treat them as sincere. Now, remember, when we're talking neighbors, we're dealing with somebody who probably already knows what we believe has already heard it and has come away putting you a bit at a distance. 
How do you deal with someone like that? And Jesus begins to show us a bit of the way. He takes him seriously. He treats the question as if it was an honest one, whether or not it actually is. And in volume six there, he's saying, treat people's respect and deference, even the bitterest of opponents. What is deference? It's when you open a door for somebody with a little bow, you know, as they are better than you and are deserving of this honor in a special way. Dan? I must confess that I would have blown this guy off. And the reason why I would have done that is because I would have put him into the category of students who say, tell me what I need to do to pass the test or tell me what I need to do to get an A. It's so easy for me because I've been around this situation so often to categorize someone like that. And I like your approach that maybe my judgment isn't so good and maybe I need to recalibrate how I deal with people that I maybe put into the wrong box or put into a certain box. Well, the problem with neighbors is you already kind of know what they're thinking. And you're probably pretty well aware if it's positive or negative toward your perspective on religion or politics or whatever it is you might be talking about. How do you deal with somebody who has hostile intent? And Jesus could deal with them different ways. There's no question about that. But the lesson brings out in this particular case, Jesus takes this very seriously. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes a comment that he says, if there is no resurrection, then we should eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. You know, so the question of salvation is one of the most important questions that anybody could ask. But Jesus then takes it with full seriousness. Anybody who will ask a salvation question, even with hostile intent, Jesus will respond in his own unique way. So the lawyer is testing Jesus. But Jesus tests the lawyer in return. He asks him a responsive question. Why does he do that? Why does he just answer the question? Especially if he had a better answer than the lawyer did. Livius. I think what's cool about this interaction here is that he, Jesus is getting him to really take ownership of what he believes about this question. It's like he's helping him to be convinced in his own mind, if you will, by throwing the question back at him to think about it. And he comes up with the answer. And, and I just think it's kind of cool how he does that. That's what I think he's doing here is he's helping him. Making him think. Yeah. Yeah. Making him think. Larry. I thought, uh, don't know if you are observing this. Is it possible that the lawyer, and I agree with how you put his position when he started, that he really was coming after Jesus and was trying to take him down. By his response, it almost sounds like the lawyer has accepted Christ's vulnerability and become vulnerable in how he has responded back to him. That's a pretty open, clear, I'm no longer going to try and do you harm kind of an answer. Yeah, the lawyer gives an honest and sincere answer to Jesus' honest and sincere question. So apparently something shifted a little bit in the lawyer's mind, and Jesus was the precipitating factor in that. Michael? I think Jesus was looking for was a little introspection. What do you in your heart of hearts believe, not what the people around you are thinking? And if I the lawyer's position, and I am a lawyer, at that circumstance, what do I really think? What do I really believe? Not the pat answer. 
but how does it, and then how does it affect my life? So he's inviting him to go a little bit deeper. You know, all teaching is hit and miss. You know, I've learned that some of the things I share, some people are very enthusiastic about. Other things other people are enthusiastic about. Some things nobody's enthusiastic about. I mean, teaching is kind of hit and miss. You throw stuff out there and some of it hits and some of it doesn't, you know. But it's critical for people to be able to integrate whatever's going on with the whole world as they understand it, with everything that they know up to that moment. How is this new idea going to integrate with that? And by asking open-ended questions like this, it forces a person to really think about how to integrate the new situation into the other. Toss out an additional question along with this one, and that is, what does Jesus' question imply about the Bible? What view of the Bible does Jesus share? Here, when he asks this question, what do the scriptures say? How do you read them? What does that imply about the Bible and how Jesus looks at the Bible? Anyway, that's just an additional thing to think about. Lou? Well, on that thought, that beautiful little text that we're supposed to love God and our fellow men, those two are the great commandments. But I was thinking on this story that it's a little bit reminiscent of the rich young ruler that came to Jesus and asked what he had to do to be saved. It has a different ending, but it kind of correlates with that, the rich young ruler, as opposed to this attorney or this lawyer who came. Jesus had a greater opportunity with this lawyer to share the real crux, the real meaning of the gospel of loving our neighbors as ourselves and God. And the rich young ruler didn't have the capacity or chose not to, I guess would be the better term, to accept that he had to give up himself to serve God. So it just made me think of that other story in the Bible. Okay. Bob? Well, this is a little bit reminiscent of when Paul was on Mars Hill. There's only a few times in the Bible when you have a certain type of, I'd call it a different type of discussion. And I know lawyers aren't always popular with all of society, but I like to think that God created lawyers too. And maybe the idea God thought, I'm going to inspire him to ask a certain type of question, because it's sort of like in difficult cases, sometimes you'll get really great gems out of like a justice of a court, where they'll give more of an intellectual explanation. So in a sense, it's like Christ was perhaps setting it up where he could answer something that he wanted raised. All right, Ashley? I guess I'm kind of with Bob on that. I'm not a lawyer, and two lawyers have already weighed in on this question. But one of the rules that lawyers often use is never ask a question you don't already know the answer to. And I think the lawyer in this case had an agenda. He knew the answers to these questions and wanted to test Jesus. But what Jesus wanted to do was get the lawyer to ask a question he didn't know the answer to. And that's where he was driving the conversation. And at the end, the lawyer throws out the question, well, who's my neighbor? And now Jesus has the opportunity to get right to the heart of the matter. Oh, I love that analysis. That really makes a ton of sense. Jesus provoking the question that he doesn't know the answer to. The interesting thing about it, though, the lawyer's response, you know, love the Lord with all your heart, your neighbor as yourself, is not a standard 
response. It's not inherent in the Old Testament text. The love your Lord with all your heart is central to Judaism, Deuteronomy 6. But love your neighbor as yourself is over in Leviticus. So it isn't even connected directly within the Old Testament text itself. To pick those two and put them together is something that it seems Jesus would do. But here it's the lawyer who does it. And that's one thing that fascinates me about this story. So what is Jesus implying about the Bible? Jesus is not suggesting a proof text approach. We like proof texting because it's simple and leads us to a satisfying conclusion, and we can move on and stop thinking about it. But Jesus instead invites the lawyer to weigh the scriptures. What do the scriptures say? What do you have to do to have eternal life? And it really is kind of a broad enough question that can go in a number of directions. So Jesus invites a weighing of the scripture, not just going, so, well, here's the text that answers your question. We're done. But instead, weighing out the scriptures and seeing a dynamic that isn't found in any one particular text. So the lawyer has put two texts together that fit very well together from our perspective today. But that's because we've run into it so often from Jesus. So the Bible is not a code book that you can just go to and find rules for every moment of every day. It's more a book of the character of God and about what Jesus' mission is all about. And you're not going to get there with simple questions and simple proof texts. So Jesus is implying in his very question, how do you read? Where do you place the central value for this question? Let's bring this home a little bit. How do you respond to questions about your faith that come from a potentially hostile source? How would you respond to the same situation? Nancy? I have to admit, I just kind of clam up. I kind of want to disappear in myself. <laughs> I'm not good at all about it. Not good at all. Mm -hmm. Appreciate your honest comment. And I think many of us at least can relate to that. When you're faced with someone who's hostile, there's two options, really. One is the skunk and the other is the turtle, right? The skunk sprays over everybody and the turtle pulls into the shell, you know? So when you're faced with hostility, you can either fight back loudly or smellily <laughs> like the skunk, or you can just pull into the shell and not respond. So yes, Jesus doesn't do either one here. And that's what's fascinating. Bill. Often, well, I don't know how often, but I have responded like Nancy talks about when someone comes at you just so strongly, they just really want to overpower you. I've just backed away. But generally, I try to be open and honest when responding to people, even if I perceive or don't perceive that they're just trying to entrap me or do whatever. I'm not bashful about that. If someone wants to talk, I'm always willing to talk <laughs> about God, about his love. That's my perspective on it anyway. All right, Lou. Well, between now and the time Jesus comes, I think we're all going to be approached with maybe even in courts, it says. But it says, don't worry about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will reveal to you what you need to say. And so I think we should never react. Because when we react, we become defensive. And that is not a good position. That's not a position Jesus ever took. 
And I think the Holy Spirit will reveal to us either a soft answer, turneth away wrath, or just acknowledge their question and love them anyway, or whatever the case needs to be. That, but I don't have to worry about what I'm going to say when somebody challenges my belief system or comes at me in a hostile manner because I've been promised that the Holy Spirit will guide and lead how I need to respond. And I think it also helps us that we don't have to worry about converting people. Yes. That's God's responsibility. You know, if we think I've just got to be more clever than this other person so that they'll be overwhelmed with the erudition here and just almost compelled to accept Jesus or join the church or something like that, that's a bigger burden than we can carry. Let me just share with you one thing that's helped me in situations like that, and that's to recognize that everyone has an argument need and a spiritual need. That every human being on this earth kind of likes to argue, kind of likes to defend their position. You know, some more than others, but there's a general need there for the argument. But everybody also has a spiritual need, which often isn't well cared for. And I found that when people come into the context of someone from another religion, the tendency is to go to the argument. For example, if a Muslim approaches you, they might say, well, what do you think of the Trinity? Well, that's a hot subject for them. It's a very controversial one. And probably not anything you can say that will not get a hostile response. And they probably heard it before and have responded before in the same way. So when I'm approached in that way, I recognize that's not going anywhere. So what can you do? And my suggestion is look for the spiritual need. And so, for example, if a Muslim says to me, you know, what do you think about the Trinity or the resurrection of Jesus? A couple of these controversial points say something like, wow, that's a really interesting question. That is a really interesting. We ought to talk about that sometime. But right now, I have a different question that I need to ask. And what's that? What does prayer mean to you? Muslims know a lot about prayer. They do a lot of praying, etc. And when someone asks a question like that, it just like opens the floodgates to be able to share what God means to them and what prayer means to them and so on. But Muslims, for example, are very hospitable people. And once they've given an answer to a question like that, they're almost obligated to turn it back and say, well, what does prayer mean to you? And now the door is open for a spiritual exchange in which you can become friends. Whereas if you spent your time talking about fine points of doctrine where you disagree, that's lively. Both sides will witness for all their worth, and nobody will change their mind. But life change can happen when two people's hearts are touched spiritually with each other. And you may have a friend for life when that happens. Michael? Well, I had a longtime client, a very loyal client, who was a Muslim. And one thing we never discussed is Islam and Christianity. I never shared my views and he never shared his. And we got along just fine. And the other thing I wanted to mention is that with Jesus and this lawyer was the fact that a lawyer in that society was highly regarded. And so he's part of the upper crust of society. And here's this guy who's a bumpkin from Galilee and probably thought he would just ask this question, getting caught in something, and that would be the end of Jesus' ministry. And it really backfired. Well, actually, I don't think it backfired. I think it changed the guy's perception of what was going on. All right, Elissa. The situation that Jesus is in here 
is a situation that we as teachers experience all the time. All of those who are teachers can, I think, agree. You have a student who asks a question, and the student may be trying to, well, maybe ask a serious question, but may also be wanting to entrap you in some way as a teacher. And if you follow Jesus's procedure here, it can get you out of that situation. But you have to be able to have the stories to tell. And then you have to be able to turn that student's question back to the student. So Jesus had it down really well, I think. As a teacher, haven't you had to do that? Mm -hmm. And to do it so skillfully, yes. Bob? Well, sometimes I found these discussions interesting because you have a chance to ask the other person questions and things. And so you can have kind of an interesting opportunity to just have a friendly discussion. And sometimes, even like the Jewish lawyer, he probably wants to have eternal life. He wants a good outcome. So people like that, they're not suicidal. A lot of them really do want to have a good answer. And so sometimes... When you have good dialogues, people will start thinking about something in a different way. So maybe not being too defensive, but actually kind of enjoying the discussion. You know, sometimes you can have those where it's kind of interesting to dialogue a little bit. And like some others have said, not be feeling like you've got to win the point, but more have an interesting discussion. From a Seventh-day Adventist perspective, it's interesting. We often think of Ellen White as sort of being a hammer that really picks at people's faults and stuff like that. But she herself said that you should never begin with the more objectionable features of our faith. Seek for the common ground when you're talking to somebody of another religion. And the interesting thing about it is she practiced that in her life. One of the most exciting things I learned from the Oxford biography of Ellen White is that when she spoke to audiences that were not Seventh-day Adventists, she never spoke about the more objectionable features of the faith. Her two main topics, one were Jesus, and the other one was temperance. She talked about subjects that they had in common. And I did not know that for many years, and I would have done well had I known that. But when you're dealing with someone that's even the least bit hostile, how you say things is often more important than what you say. How you say things is kind of critical. And I can remember a situation in which I was in a conversation. I'd been invited by a group of non-Christians to discuss what they thought, what I thought they could gain from what Christians believe. And the party was crashed by an apologist who came to attack the Bible and attack a Christian understanding of Jesus and was really hostile and sort of dominated the conversation. And I think my reaction was a little bit like what Nancy had suggested early. I just said, well, in this context, there isn't much I can do, except whenever I do have a chance to speak to show more the character of Jesus, of who he was, rather than say a whole bunch of things. In fact, a lot of the person's objections to the Bible were true. There were stuff I knew about. You know, I mean, this guy had done some scholarship and stuff, and he was well-known in his country as an apologist for his faith. I did not respond a whole lot there, but just was sort of quiet and saying, you know, my understanding this conversation was a friendly conversation between faiths that try to learn from each other. This is not hitting in that direction, so I, I don't have anything to respond here. And two things happened. First of all, after the meeting was over, 
that person got kicked out of the group because the rest of the people in his own faith tradition were deeply disturbed and felt that all the pluses were on the side of the one who didn't speak. <laughs> Interestingly enough, two weeks later, word came that he had renounced his faith. I have no idea whether it was connected to what happened two weeks before, but it's very possible that God was able to speak to him in spite of all that hostility in a response that wasn't what he had expected. So I do think this lesson is really hitting on some very significant stuff. Livius. I accepted a challenge by a Jehovah's Witness that came knocking on my door. They were wanting to do Bible studies and stuff, and I thought to myself, well, okay, let me give this a go and see how it goes. And I thought to myself, how am I going to communicate? How am I going to share what I believe with this guy? I decided to put my Adventism on the shelf and just talk about Jesus, look at the Bible. I thought, oh, hey, we both have a Bible. Let's use that as a common ground and just talk about Jesus, talk about the Bible and whatever it is that he wants to talk about, use the Bible and not quote well and why or anything like that. And we had several good conversations, but I found out that they have their own translation of the Bible. We started to not have a common ground anymore because we didn't have a common base by which we could. His scripture said one thing and mine said something different, slightly different. And so we just had to end the conversation. But it was really freeing to just concentrate on scripture and bringing Jesus than to talk about the 28 fundamental beliefs or whatever, whatnot. But I found that really freeing to just talk about Jesus and scripture. Thank you for that testimony. Anthony. This is a kind of a fun one. I think there's, and I fall in this category, you know, there's people that do a lot of study and a lot of thinking, and we have a lot, or maybe we think we have a lot of knowledge. I'm an engineer by trade and small story here. My wife asked a question one day. She's like, I wonder how this works, which was great. I was excited because now I could explain to her in depth and detail how something worked. And somewhere around a quarter through the story, I looked at her face and she said, I really didn't want to know. <laughs> so I think sometimes we do have to be careful, especially if we've invested a lot of time in studying and we know a lot that sometimes what we bring can be overwhelming to people who, you know, they're just dipping their toe in the water. Maybe they want to know a little bit, but maybe they don't really need to know a lot of details. So we have to really gauge our responses carefully in that way. Well, Jesus was a bit of a minimalist here, wasn't he? The education he gave was fairly small. We love to jump in and give a seven-course spiritual dinner when maybe the person was asking for a half a sandwich. You know? And yes. I think that's a very, very important point to make. Terry, would you read Luke 10, 27 to 29? We get a little bit further into this back and forth between Jesus and the lawyer. He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? We probably don't have time, but I did ask the question there. Why does the lawyer respond to Jesus' affirmation with another question? And I would suggest that the lawyer was looking for a checklist. You know, I wonder what must I do? Well, don't murder anybody. Check. Don't commit adultery. Check. No stealing. Check. I think. Love God and others. Oh, boy. Suddenly, 
<laughs> there's no list anymore, but something much, much deeper that God is looking for. If salvation is based on performance, then Jesus' answer would be extremely discouraging. Because love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. I think all of us who've been in the faith for decades are still aspiring to fully grasp what that means and to carry it out. The lesson sends us over to Matthew 22, because the same story is told in a different way. In Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40. He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. All right. So here's the interesting thing. In Luke 10, the question is, what must I do to be saved? And it's the lawyer who answers his own question. In Matthew 22, the question is, which of the commandments is greater? And Jesus answers it this time. Instead of another question, he gives the same answer that the lawyer in Luke 10 gives. So Jesus and the lawyer word the principles exactly the same. He's saying, okay, the essence of it all is love God with all your heart, your neighbor is yourself. That's right. Jesus agrees. The principles are the same. But what does Jesus add in Matthew 22 that isn't there in Luke 10? Provoking you to read deeply. <laughs> what does Jesus add that is not there in Luke 10? First of all, he says, David, was that your hand up? Go ahead. Well, in Matthew, Jesus says that the whole rest of their scripture, the whole rest of the Torah, the Bible, the law and the prophets all rest on those two commandments. That's not in Luke. Absolutely. Nailed it. Yeah. Jesus is saying that these two statements really within themselves have the whole of the Ten Commandments. And then he goes on to say the whole scriptures hang on these two. Now, what does that tell us about? hermeneutics, how to interpret the Bible. When Jesus says these two statements are kind of basic to everything, what is he saying about the Bible? All right, Lou? Well, everything we read has to be in that context about God and love and human beings and love. I think the entire Bible is portraying that image of God and love, and that we should read everything in that context about God. Okay, so seeing these principles as the core that everyone else needs to be related to. Okay, very good. Is it saying that some parts of the Bible are more important than others? That's a controversial question, but Jesus was a controversial figure. As we should expect, if God comes down to earth, he's going to see some things that we couldn't ever see. Yeah. There's two basic ways to read the Bible, I think, among lay people. One is to see the Bible as a rule book, and every detail of the Bible is of equal weight. And you can talk about person's diet as seriously as about salvation. It's all on the same level. And if somebody's failing in they brought a little cheese to the potluck or something like that. They have committed a crime as great as murder or adultery almost. The idea of the Bible also being at the same level, Jesus doesn't seem to read it that way. He seems to recognize that there are weightier matters. You know, many people who critique the Bible, they go to various stories of the Old Testament where God doesn't come off looking so good, where God took a big risk and saying, well, that undoes everything else. 
But if you realize, and I personally think Graham Maxwell was very much operating by this principle as I see uh, him at work, is the idea that some of these things don't give the whole picture of God. There are things in the Bible that are God dealing with very messy situations. But when you see the deepest principles, the high points of Scripture, then you put everything else in perspective. So I think Jesus is saying some things are more important than others. And it may even be the two are not the ultimate thing. Larry. One of the things that I embarked on almost two and a half years ago now is I'm reading the Bible through seven different versions, uh, one of which is a Hebrew commentary. And I go through a book, each book with each one, one chapter immediately following. And I have been stuck in Leviticus now for the last couple of weeks. And I actually am enjoying it because I'm now reading it with enough different versions and viewpoints, it's like, aha, there's some interesting things here. But very little in Leviticus that's practical to a non-Jew in 2023. There's some things, but, you know, for the most part. But your comment has pointed out how much more enjoyable, and I'm going to say useful, the big picture stories have become when I do it this way, rather than reading the front to cover and then try to get that done in a year and then get a different one and read that front to cover in a year. So I appreciate you bringing that out in that fashion. And I wanted to share that I've been doing that and I have found that to be absolutely true. Let me point out a couple more of these kind of texts. Galatians 5.14 is one. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Whoa, what just happened here, Paul? Isn't the number one commandment, love God with all your heart? But Paul now goes and says, the commandment above all commandments is love your neighbor as yourself. It sums it all up. And I'd suggest that loving God, in Paul's mind, is best seen in how we treat other people. Our love for God is illustrated in how we treat others. Maybe that comes full circle to the question at the beginning, doesn't it? Can you love God more deeply than you love others? Or or don't the two, in a sense, go hand in hand? Anyway, Bill. Earlier in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says to treat others the way you want to be treated yourself, and he quotes the same ending on this, it depends on the whole law and the prophets. Terry, would you read Micah 6, 6 to 8? The middle of the Old Testament is another one of these sum it all up texts, one of these high points. Micah 6, 6 to 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With tens of thousands of rivers of oil, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Fascinating. The Bible is full of sacrifices. It's full of rules to be obeyed. But Micah sums it up in this way. If you want to please God, If you want to love God with all your heart, those things may be important. Obedience is important. Back then, sacrifices were very important. But the essence of the matter was love to God through love to the neighbor. 
So the two even became one in a real sense. Micah points to something that's higher, something that's better. And I think this can energize our study of the Bible, is the recognition that there's a lot of complexity if you try to take everything with equal seriousness. It's all important. God put it there. It's worthy of our study. But as we study, keep in mind, not everything is of equal weight. As Jesus said, these ought you have done without leaving the other undone. All right, Michael. Yeah, Jesus said also to love your enemies. Now, I don't have any trouble loving my neighbors. They're nice people and my friends and so forth. But believe me, I'm being honest when I say there's some people who wronged me in the past, and I find it very difficult loving them. Although I've also pointed out to other people, Jesus said, love everybody. He didn't say like everybody. (laughs) All right, Lou. Yeah, I had a good friend once point out the fact that the most unlovely need love the most. And that's very much against my human nature, like Michael was just saying. People who are unnice to us, people who are maybe that we are repelled by, they need love the most. Jesus spent his time with the most unlovely when he was here on earth. And I think that's a beautiful example. And it's not a human nature thing. It's a God thing only. God did the most for the planet that loved him the least. Yes. Yeah. Anthony. I'm going to take a bit of a risk here and kind of fall back on the tech industry a little bit. Right now, we hear a lot about artificial intelligence and AI, et cetera. And part of that's based on using a whole lot of data to develop an algorithm for getting a system to work and work well. And you can contrast that with a command-oriented system, something that has a set number of rules and follows those rules regardless. And I think that's actually a good way to set up the difference between having someone who just follows a list of commands and somebody who who the algorithm is their morals, which is developed through understanding the Bible and trying to get those kind of experiences. I think we are encouraged by what we read here to develop moral code that encourages a life that is lived, that is a praise to God, where if we simply just follow commands, we fall short of that beauty. All right, let's go to number six in the handout, and that's Luke chapter 10 and verses 30 to 37. Get the Good Samaritan story back in our minds. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three, do you think, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. 
Did you hear that story differently this time? I did. I've always thought about how Jesus is saying, who's your neighbor? That's the key point. But I think there's something else going on here. The Samaritan was acting toward the man who was hurt the same way Jesus acted toward the lawyer, that Jesus treated him with kindness and compassion and sought to bring him to a different place than what he was before. With the Samaritan, Samaritans and Jews absolutely hated each other. If you want to talk about any bad relationship you have ever had, Samaritans and Jews was that relationship. Why? Because it had a history that went back 2,000 years. Let me give you a little of the backstory of the Samaritans. The Samaritan-Jewish conflict was rooted in the split of Israel between north and south. The Samaritans were from the north. The Jews were from the south. After all, the word Jew and the word Judea is the same in the Greek. You sometimes can't tell whether it's talking about the territory or the person when it talks about Judeans. So that's where the term Jew comes from. So Samaritans and Jews have this long history going back to the split. Why would the Samaritans think their religion was superior to the Jews? Let me tell you their story. It all goes back before David. You see, David is the one who established Jerusalem as the capital. Before that, Jerusalem was not the capital. It's the perfect capital. It's the very center of the country and all the main roads down the center of the country, both north, south, and east, west, run through Jerusalem. And you have plenty of fresh water there, mountain springs. So Jerusalem makes the ideal capital. But the problem was it disadvantaged the north, which had had the capital up until that point. Before David, the center of Israelite faith was not in Jerusalem. It was in the north. Abraham's first stop when he came from Ur of the Chaldees was in Shechem, about 25 miles north of Jerusalem, the very heart of Samaria, the very, very heart of where the Samaritans lived. The Samaritan Pentateuch says that Abraham sacrificed Isaac on Mount Gerizim outside of Shechem, not on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. When Jacob came back from Mesopotamia, he settled where? In Shechem. And that's where you find Jacob's well. The very first convocation of Israel, when Israel came out of Egypt and entered Canaan, the very first nationwide convocation did not happen in Jerusalem. It happened at Shechem. They assembled six tribes on Mount Gerizim, six tribes on Mount Ebal, and they recited across the valley as giant congregations to each other. During the conquest, there was opposition in the south, and there was opposition in the north. There was no opposition in the center of the country. Apparently, Abraham, Jacob, and others had left enough converts that when the Israelites returned, there were people that recognized and did not fight back. The body of Joseph was buried in Shechem. The north was associated with Joseph, who was the son of the favored wife. And Joseph's sons were Ephraim, Manasseh, the tribes at the heart of the territory of the north. The south was associated with Judah, who was the son of Leah, the second favored wife. And then eventually it became associated with David. So you have David in the south, Joseph in the north, two great patriarchs. The tabernacle was planted in Shiloh, and Shiloh is in the north. 
much closer to Samaria than it is to Jerusalem, closer to Shechem. It was David that made Jerusalem the capital of the country, and it was Solomon who built the temple there. But there was a very, very short history associated with Jerusalem. So when the country split in two, the part that didn't have Jerusalem in it went its own way. They built rival temples. They rejected the prophets and the Psalms. The Samaritans only have the five books of Moses because they were all that was written before the time of David. And so the prophets and the Psalms, that is Southern religion. And the Samaritans rejected much of what Jews call the Bible. The exile to Babylon was mostly from the south. And while they were there, the religion got reformed. So when they came back from Babylon, they were different than they were before. The Israelites were used to having Yahweh with female goddesses and things like that. We have archaeological evidence for this. And hints within the Bible itself that there was a lot of idolatry going on in Israel. But the ones who came back from Babylon had given up idolatry. It was now a different religion, and the Samaritans rejected those reforms and built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And that's the history of this conflict. If you've ever had anybody that you've had difficulty with it as a neighbor or whatever, it's almost nothing compared to what was going on with the Jews and the Samaritans. So Jesus tells a story that would bring this home that a Samaritan a despised Samaritan could come closer to loving the neighbor as self than someone who had the right religion. So this Good Samaritan story, I think, is really a powerful one in talking about mission. Let me close with this question. We have time maybe for one or two responses, if you'd like. How do you approach a spiritual conversation with people who don't take the Bible seriously? You're going to find that more and more in today's world. It's increasingly likely that the people you want to share the Bible with don't trust the Bible. They've been taught to believe that the Bible disadvantages women and minorities and is anti-gay and all kinds of other things. Don't want to touch the Bible. How do you talk to someone who doesn't take the Bible seriously? Any thoughts on that? Okay, Lou? I think that you can just talk about God. And in this world, it's getting so dark and people are nervous about what's happening in our world that we don't have to quote the Bible. We don't have to argue the Bible. We can just talk about the peace that we have and that it's from our own experience because we know a loving God and go that direction. I had a very interesting conversation here with one of the caregivers of a person in our apartment complex, and he looked very rough and rugged and tattooed and a bandana on his head and all of that kind of stuff. And I said, you know, I would really like to get to know you. We had a wonderful conversation and it was basically about God, but it wasn't about doctrine or Bible stuff. It was just about God and who he is and the kind of peace that we can have in these very turbulent times. Mm, Thank you for that testimony. Very interesting. Bob? I would appreciate if we could set a time sometime in the future to devote a little bit of time to this. When we plan it ahead, we can get some thoughts together because actually I, along with probably a lot of other people, run into this quite a bit. I didn't want to shoot from the hip today, but I'd like to think some months from now if we had a time that we could think about it. Well, perhaps we'll have a lesson on biblical interpretation here shortly. And it sounds like that's something we'd all be eager to do. 
Let me give you a skinny version. And I would do this. There's two types of people that have discarded the Bible. One would be a person that has never really studied the Bible, never really tried, but they've accepted a common sense that the Bible is not useful for them. That's one type of person. Another type of person is a person who's tried the Bible, but under the guidance of people who maybe have a negative picture of God, uh, the Bible has been very distasteful to them. All right. If the person you're talking to has never really read the Bible, then my response would be taste and see. You know, if you've never really looked at it, why don't you just try it? I remember an atheist aunt who was 16 years old in Berlin when uh, the Russians came into Berlin and some horrific things happened to her. She hated God. She hated men, etc. But she found fascinating the picture of Jesus in the Gospel of John as I described it to her. And she went that evening and began reading the Gospel of John. So if somebody's never really tried, invite them, try to find a way to invite them to simply give it a try. And through prayer, etc., God can do amazing things. The other type, the person who's already tried the Bible and rejected it on the basis of their experience, then I would repeat what I think I said earlier. How you answer is more important than what you say. And here my mentor is, is a pastor named Glenn Kuhn, who is long deceased now. But he wrote a book on how to reach relatives and neighbors and friends who have already rejected your faith. And he gave seven little suggestions. I'll go through them just quickly here and then let Neil sort of close things off with a comment. But he said, first of all, don't ever tell them what to do. They've already made a judgment about your faith. And to bring it up and bring it up, that's just getting into nagging, and it has a negative result. So if you know that they're already negative, et cetera, don't tell them what to do. Instead, be a fun person to be with. Just exhibit joy and peace in Jesus and let God work in their lives. And the three other things he talked about was faith, hope, and love. Express faith in them. You know, I really appreciate the way you think, things like that. Find ways to compliment them. A second one is love, to show a genuine interest in who they are and how they think. And the third is hope. So, you know, I think you have a bright future. I like the way you think and where you're heading. I think good things can happen. These kinds of things are far more valuable than any kind of argument, any kind of biblical study at that point. The core issue is not what the Bible teaches. It's their willingness at all to learn from it. And that's only going to change if somebody who loves the Bible turns out to be a person that they really like and a person that makes sense in real life. So the title of the book is Path to the Heart. And somebody's still printing those up somewhere on the Internet so you can get it. But Glenn Kuhn, Path to the Heart. Best book I've ever seen if you have issues with neighbors, friends, children, grandchildren, parents, whatever, in terms of face, differences of face, uh, best way to approach it I've ever seen. Neil, close it off for us. A short story. Both my father and brother were in the merchant service during the Second World War. A convoy was forming off of Boston. My dad was in it and had a new man on board ship. And somebody said something to the man and he came to my dad. He says, I hear you're a Christian. My dad says, yeah. He says, never thought about it. My dad says, well, have you ever read the Bible? Man says, nah, never had any interest. He says, well, why not? We got plenty of time on this trip. So he loaned him his Bible. Somewhere off the shore, 
between Nova Scotia and England. They ran into a submarine pack. The man turned around and everybody was putting on their life jackets and this man didn't. Somebody said, why not? He said, because the Bible tells you that if you've got someone that is a believer and trusts God, you'll come through safely. We've got that kind of man on board ship. That's the power of the Bible if someone is willing to read it. Thank you for that thought. Appreciate the narrative. Let's pray. Dear Lord, mission has gotten a little deeper than we expected. And we probably all know somebody who's a little bit on the hostile side. Maybe we've tried nine different ways to get through that with no success. I pray that you would help us to attend to the Jesus approach, the Samaritan approach, and learn to see these people through your eyes and help it that they may see God through our eyes. It's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.